Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be with you here again this morning. Looking forward to being with you. We, have, um, we are in week two of our series called Myths About God and Faith. And what we're exploring here in this series is we're exploring uh, misconceptions and beliefs uh, that are out there, some inside the church, while others, other uh, myths might be held by those outside of the church. But what we want to do is take some time to explore why we believe what we believe. Now, just uh, as by way of reminder, this series is not about an us versus them, uh, that we are superior to everyone else for knowing what we know, but rather we want to explore these ancient truths that Christians have been wrestling with, with for 2,000 years. We want to do it with gentleness, we want to do it with humility, and we want to uh, do it knowing that there's a God who cares about every single person in, his, in this creation. And so that's the approach that we want to have. Um, the other part of this is we don't want this uh, series to simply be about filling our minds with a bunch of knowledge. Uh, we think it's important that we, are, that we are thinking people. One of the things we looked at last week was, was along those lines. But we don't want knowledge for knowledge's sake alone. We want that to lead to a greater understanding of who our God is and His promises for our lives. Because I'm convinced and I believe that the God of the Bible wants you to experience an abundant, joy-filled life doesn't mean that he, he wants you to never feel pain or discomfort or only have good times in life, but he has an abundant life for you and for me, and, and that is when we fully understand who he is and who we are in him, and that we can understand it. So this knowledge is to point us back to Jesus and, and the life that he has for us. So that's the purpose and the heart uh, behind this series. And uh, last week we looked at, and once again I'll mention, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter's writing... And he says, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, but do so with all gentleness and reverence or with humility. So we always want to understand what is the hope that we have in Jesus? Why do we have that hope and be able to explain it? So that is, that's kind of what this series is about. Now, as we get started here today, the myth for today that we're going to be addressing is a myth that we believe is a myth that says all gods are the same. We just use different names. So it's along the lines of a myth that would say that all religions basically are the same thing, just our own description of who God is. We want to address that and talk about it today. Uh, now that belief is becoming more and more popular in the world that we live in, in a postmodern world where truth is being, the even the definition of truth is being changed a little bit, and, and truth is starting to be where, well, that might be true for you, but this isn't true for me. So even the, the understanding of truth is losing its ground. So it makes sense then that it's becoming more and more popular to say, well, maybe that religion has their own truth and that religion has their own truth. And so God is all kind of the same. And so that's one of the things that's out there. Now, another part of why I believe that this belief is popular um, is because it's kind of, a, I, I call it a cover your bases approach. It's a way of saying, well, let me just make sure just in case one God is right and I have the, let me just kind of have a, just acknowledge all of them. That way, when I get to the end of my days, maybe that God will say, well, at least you believed in me a little bit. And, and so there's this belief out there, kind of a cover your bases. We're not really sure what is truth, so we'll accept everything as truth just in case. Now, uh, we see this even show up in popular culture. Uh, there's a, a movie, a very highly intellectual movie called uh, Talladega Nights, um, The Legend of Bobby Scott. Um, <laughs> Ricky Bobby. There you go. Sorry, I had it wrong. And um, 
it, it, it's a Will Ferrell movie, so you know, you know it's quite intel- intellectual. But in it, we see this idea uh, that it comes to play. We can see this idea of this kind of pluralistic view of just call on as many names of God as you can think of when you're in need and find if hopefully you'll get the right one. So I I actually, I'm going to show you a clip from the movie. Now, those of you who don't like slapstick, just sit there for 30 seconds and I'll come back to you. Don't worry. But for the rest of you, here's what is common out there in culture. Now, that's one of the nastiest wrecks you'll ever see. It's all right. You're safe. You're safe. We got you. I'm on fire. I'm on fire. Okay. It's all right. You're not on fire. I knew it. You're lying. I'm burned. There is no fire. Come back here. Help me. I don't want to die. Stop, stop, and roll. You're not on fire, Ricky Bobby. I'm on fire. You're not on fire. Mr. Bobby, come on down here. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jewish God! Help me, Allah! Ah! Help me, Tom Cruise! Ah! Help me, Oprah Winifrey! Tom Cruise used a witchcraft on me to get the fire off me! Look, your help's coming. <laughs> so maybe Allah, maybe Jewish God, maybe Tom Cruise and your witchcraft can get the fire off me. So this is one of those kind of, it it illustrates the idea that just keep calling on, they're all basically the same, is the thought there. So we want to address that uh, myth that's out there today. Uh, Will Ferrell, oh man, okay. So so let's begin before we move on and just answer a few questions uh, that will help us to set the groundwork for addressing today's myth. First is the idea that truth cannot actually be relative. The very definition of truth, if something is true, it can't be true sometimes and not true at other times. If we believe that, then that we actually are negating truth. So it's okay to say that truth is truth and truth does not change. It's either true or it's not true. The other thing is this, that truth, all truth is God's truth. So something, if something is true, that, that is something that belongs to God. If, if God is the creator of all and, and the sustainer of all, then if it is true, it is his truth. That means that there are some things that are said in the world that are true that, do not, uh, that are not in the Bible. For example, gravity is true. The Bible doesn't address it, but it's truth. We believe that. That's part of God's truth. And, and there might even be some other faiths that have say things that are true that are about God. For example, there's three uh, major monotheistic religions in the world that all say there's one God. Well, we affirm that as true. We believe that to be true. And if that indeed is true, then no matter who claims it, it is truth. Does that make sense? So truth is truth, uh, and it cannot change. Now, and we call that the general revelation of God. God, in general, reveals truth to his people. And so throughout the earth that there are uh, cultures from all time who have had some uh, understanding of who God is or have come to know the truth different ways. And so that's the general revelation that God generally reveals himself and and different truths that can be picked up um, all over the place. When we get to things of specifics in scripture, that's a special revelation where there's actual specifics that are revealed throughout time and tested. Uh, The other thing about this is when we think about truth, so we believe that truth is, there's things about God that are embedded in the hearts of all mankind. 
It's, we're created in this image, and we're created with this knowledge. We looked at last week a little bit in Romans chapter 1, that God has made us to have some sort of belief in God and His ways. It's embedded in us. So truth is out there, but this morning what we want to talk about is all gods cannot be the same. The distinctions are too great. And so when we think about faith, we have to come to the realization that they can't all be true. Because if they're all true, they negate each other. Because if there's too many distinctions, that would be contradictory. Now a question here, and, and there are most major religions would say that they have an exclusive belief in truth, that they understand God in one way. And, and so if we hold to any sort of exclusive claim on, yeah, we, we believe that this is tried and true and tested, so we reasonably believe in what we believe, that, and there's other faiths who also believe that, they can't all be true. It just would negate each other. Does that make sense? Tracking a little bit? All right, great. So they can't, since all gods cannot be the same because the distinctions are too great. Now here's a question. So is it arrogant to claim that you understand and believe truth? Is it arrogant to say, well, we know the truth and we think that you are missing out or you're missing the full truth? Let me just answer that and say, no. Okay, let's move on. Um, <laughs> no, I, I don't believe it's arrogant to claim the truth because if we believe that we have the evidence for belief has been tested and found secure, that you can have a reasonable faith. And actually, it would be a shame if we couldn't with confidence say that we believe something to be true. If I'm talking with someone who has a different worldview, it would be a shame for me to say like, well, I'm not confident in my beliefs or, or you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to claim that I know truth and you don't. We should have a reasonable, it's okay to say, I've tested this, I've tried it, I've looked into this. There's been very intelligent people throughout the course of history who've wrestled with these issues and come to these conclusions, and they've remained secure for a long time. And so it's not arrogant to claim truth. Now, the important, the important thing is how we approach that. It's very important, and we're going to look at that in a little bit of how Paul did it. But one writer says this, Dialogue between people of different faiths is at its best when we seek understanding rather than agreement. Jesus commanded his followers to love their neighbors in the same way they love themselves. So as Christians, we should seek to live positively with our neighbors, neighbors while being true to the important parts of our faith. We also want to be open about our beliefs, sharing what we have found to be life-enhancing. So it's the posture and the approach. It's okay to say, well, these are the conclusions that we've come to. We believe to be true, but it's how do we approach others who maybe have a different perspective. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 17. And in Acts chapter 17, it's in the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. We find here a story where Paul uh, is right, or actually speaking to a group of people who believed that many gods were real. Kind of a pluralistic world. Or at the very best, they thought, well, we're not sure who's God, so we'll just worship many of them. And he's in the ancient city of Athens, and um, on a, a hill called Mars Hill, which stands right across from the uh, Parthenon. In fact, if you go there to this day, you can see the existence of, of all these, the remains of all these temples that we'll see Paul addressing. But in this short little section in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 22... We see how Paul addresses and deals with the idea of speaking to people who believe other things than what he believes, but how he proclaimed truth. So let's look at a few things here. 
So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and this is Mars Hill. He said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with the inscription that said, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all people and gives breath to all things. He made from one man a nation of mankind to live on, on all over the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that the, they would seek after God if perhaps they may grope for him and find him though he is not far off from each one of us. So just stop there for a moment. So Paul starts and he's addressing, he's looking around and he walked around the city and saw all these different temples and altars and people worshiping many gods. They were saying, well, hey, we don't know which one is truth. Maybe they're all true. We worship all these gods. In fact, so much so that they had an altar to an unknown god that they worshiped. And so when Paul sees all this, he didn't look at them and say, okay, I looked around and I saw you guys are even worshiping an unknown God. And, and he didn't say, you guys, are you kidding me? You're insane. What is wrong with you? In fact, his approach was different. He said, I notice that you're really religious. I notice that you have a longing in your heart to seek after God. I notice that you have this desire to worship. In fact, so much so that you're, you have an altar to an unknown God. And so Paul starts there and he says, let me tell you, I actually know that God that you're missing out on. See, he is a creator of the heaven and, heavens and the earth. He's the God who actually knows you. And, and it's through him you receive life and breath. And every day he's what sustains this universe. And then when Paul goes on, he says, all mankind, it says, if you're groping after God, you're searching for meaning to connect. But I want you to know he's nearer than you even can imagine. So notice the approach that Paul has. He meets them where they're at and addresses this, and he starts introducing what he believes to be truth in a very compassionate, generous way, but he is not compromising what he believes to be true at all. Now, verse 28. He says, For in this God we live and move and exist even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. So now he's saying, here's this, he claimed truth where it was found. Their own poets had a saying that says we are all God's children. So Paul said, oh, you know when your poets say that? I, that's true. I believe that. We're all children of God. And being the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. It's not an image formed by art or the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising this man from the dead. So he starts to get a little more personal and serious, doesn't he? He, he starts to say, oh, and through this God, he, he's made a way for you to, to find this redemption or salvation and, and instead of facing the judgment of God. Now, judgment is a really popular word today that we can talk about, right? It's a good conversation starter in the neighborhood parties, uh, facing the judgment of God. But Paul doesn't back away from this truth. He starts to talk about the distinctions and what makes his claim of truth to be real. 
And so one of the things that he does, he has a, a gentle approach. He claims truth where he finds it, even if it's in their beliefs. He says, oh, that's true. And then he starts to reveal what he believes about God and what's been revealed through Scripture. And he starts giving them the distinctions. Here's what's distinct about this God. He is near to you. He's not made of, of gold and silver. He's not created by mankind. He's a God who wants to know you. He's personal. And through coming and living and dying and being raised from the dead, he's confirmed his own, this own story, and he's made a way for you to know him. He started pointing out these distinctions. Now, notice the next verse, verse 32. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them began to sneer. So sometimes our approach to truth is going to not be received super well. Some people might say, you believe what? Okay, nice one. And, and certainly Christians are mocked for their belief in a God who came to earth, even to this day. But so some began to sneer, but others said, we want to hear you again concerning these matters. These matters. And it talks about a man named Dionysus who actually accepts the truth, becomes a Christian. And to this day, there's, there's evidence of the ruins of a church started by Dionysus right there on Mars Hill. Which again is one of the cool things about the Bible when we see affirmation through history and through archaeology. But notice here that Paul's approach was really important. His heart for the people. And then his message started pointing to the uniqueness and distinctions of the Christian faith. And that's really where we start to say, are all gods the same? Well, when we get into the distinctions which makes God who he is, that's when we say, no, it can't be. So what I want to do is throughout this series, we're actually going to look at a lot of the distinctions of what we believe to be true and why we believe those. But today I just want to throw a couple of them out there to you without explaining them, because we're going to explain them in the weeks ahead. I'm going to spend more time on one of the distinctions that helps us see that how God is unique. And, and Christianity truly is unique from all other faiths. Now, the first thing is this, is the doctrine of salvation. The idea of how we even are saved by God is unique to Christianity. The story of a God who came down to be with us, to be substitution for our sins, because of his love and his grace, not your works. In John chapter 3, verse 16, talks about how distinct and unique Christianity is. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever should believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. That is so crazy compared to most world religions. A distinction of Christianity is God's grace and his love for his people. He offers redemption. He offers new life. We're going to talk about that more next week. Uh, the other one is the uniqueness of the Bible. One of the distinctions of the Christian faith is the uniqueness of the, of the Bible. We share this in common with Judaism, that our Bible is a collection of historical stories and records and, and teachings, but it has some of the blemishes of the faith as well as the high points. We don't, it doesn't hide that. Most religious documents are just the teachings of the religious leader, like uh, the teachings of Muhammad or, or uh, Buddhism and stuff are, are just the teachings. But Christianity, the uniqueness of the Bible, shares the history and the story of Jesus and his life on earth and, and his interactions, and many of which of these have been uh, confirmed through extra-biblical sources. So it's unique to Christianity. And then finally, a, a distinction that we want to spend time on today is just the very nature of God is unique to Christianity and specifically the idea of the Trinity. 
Now, I'm going to take the next 30 seconds to explain the Trinity, and then we'll be done um, for the morning. So, (laughs) what I thought we would do this morning is because it is a distinction and uniqueness of Christianity and something that we believe to be true, is I want to talk about why do we believe in the Trinity? And and then we want to end with a very important question, why does it matter? And because this is one of the distinctions. Now, let me make a few statements here. You will not leave here today fully grasping the Trinity. If you do, come see me afterwards and help me, okay? Because this is higher than what we can understand. One uh, illustration is it's almost like we're living in a two-dimensional world, and God is a three-dimensional being, and we're trying to describe him from a two-dimensional standpoint. Whereas maybe we're used to only seeing flat circles and lines, and we see God, and we're like, it looks like a bunch of circles and lines, but we can't fully grasp the nature of God. So it's okay to have some mystery in who God is. It's part of the joy that God has as we pursue to know him more. It glorifies him. And so it's okay. You're not going to have full understanding. Um, But we do want to know why do we describe things as a trinity. Now, the other thing about trinity is the word trinity is not in your Bibles. This was a word designed by the early church fathers when they're trying to describe in human terms what they see about the nature of God. So it's okay that you hear about the Trinity and say, I, I, I'm not sure, where, what, what's the one passage that just says, okay, let me explain this to you. It's not in there. I wish it was, but it is not. But rather, this is a collection from Genesis through Revelation of verses that help us say, well, there's something else going on. How do we even describe the nature of God? And even some of the elements of how we describe God are just human terms that help us. God is a father and God is a son. He revealed himself that way, but it's not as if God the Father actually had Jesus as his son. It's, they exist in that relationship, but that's, those are terms we get, but that's not exactly fully describing how it works with God. So some of it is just ways that, that we're trying to describe him. So you ready to go to hear about Trinity? I'm going to use a multimedia presentation for you to help you. Going a little old school here today. Uh, to describe, this is just some of the verses that help us under, come to the conclusion that the Trinity exists. Now, this will not answer all your questions. I'm only giving you one verse per piece, and, and we're going to move on to introduce this is how we got, came to this, okay? So first of all, Scripture is very clear about one thing, and that is that there is one God. We believe that there is one God, and Scripture uh, talks about it from the beginning. In fact, In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So it's very clear throughout Scripture that there is only one God. You shall have no other gods. And in in Hebrew, this phrase here, this verse up there, is Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. Means the Lord, or Yahweh, is God. Yahweh is one God. Now, that word Eloheinu, which means God here, is actually has a mystery to it. Because there's, it, it indicates that there's something else going on with God, that there's a nature to God that's more than just how we think of one or one piece of paper. That the word Elohim is actually a plural word for God. It, it, but it's not saying gods. It's God, but it has this plural language to it, as opposed to El, which just means There's only one God. So there's something mysterious. There's one God, but there's something going on in the Hebrew language and in Jewish faith. Even in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates mankind, 
It says, let us create man in our image. One God says that. Okay, get it? We're done? Closing prayer? Leave? <laughs> so there's mystery to God as he's referred to himself. In, there's something else going on there. So we, but we do believe there's only one God. It's consistent through Scripture, but there's something else happening. Now, God has revealed himself in different ways throughout Scripture. We've, we have even Jesus, when he says, teach, uh, when he said, I'm going to teach you how to pray, he had says, address God as Father. So there's this indication throughout Scripture that Father is, is God. And certainly throughout the New Testament, we see God referred to as God the Father quite often. And we believe that there's uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, that's where he says, pray then in this way, O fa our Father who is in heaven. Now, we also believe that Jesus is God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, or the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the Word, in this case, is a Greek word logos, it means something that gives logic, it's where we get our word logic the ordering of the universe, and it's, it's attributed to Jesus. The one who created, who was there at the beginning of creation, who gives purpose and order to it all, is Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Okay? Again, I'm not asking you to fully understand it. I'm showing you it's in Scripture. This is why we tried to wrestle with this. So Jesus is God. Now also we have the Holy Spirit, also in Scripture referred to as God. And again, I'm only giving you one verse for all of these. There's many verses. We never want to build our theology on one verse alone. So if you believe something because you read one verse in Scripture, make sure you read all of Scripture and make sure that it's uh, confirmed through time and time again, which all of these are. But the Holy Spirit is referred to as God. So the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter uh, 5 3 and 4, we see that uh, a guy named Ananias uh, kind of lied, and Peter's talking to him. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You did not lie to men, but you lied to God. So the Holy Spirit is God. So these are just some of the verses. There's many, many more. Hebrews 1, 3 is a great one for Jesus. It says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his being. So each person of the trinity is fully god not just and they're not like each a third god they fully are god again a little bit out of our dimension but this is how the early church fathers tried to explain it now one thing that we also know though that is clear and by the way this is not just in the new testament in the old testament we see uh, the same theology hinted at though not as clearly we see times when god has manifest himself sometimes as the angel of the Lord, and they fear that they would die because they saw the face of God. It was a pre-incarnate Christ throughout Scripture. Uh, there's verses that mention that the Holy Spirit and the Savior being God. So throughout the Old Testament also talks about this. But, okay, still tracking? Sort of? All right, here we go. So the other thing that we believe, though, is that the Father is not Jesus, and Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They're all different. In Luke chapter 3, verse 22, it talks about the baptism of Jesus. And it says there, when Jesus is being baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So throughout Scripture, we find that the Father is not Jesus, and Jesus is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. 
You did not think you were coming to school today. I apologize for that. <laughs> it's important that we understand this. They are not the same. So all of our analogies in trying to explain the Trinity break down. Sometimes we'll say, oh, he's like an egg. There's a shell, there's an egg white, and there's a yolk. They all make up an egg, and they're all different parts. But the problem is they're not all an egg. If I just have an egg shell, that's not an egg. So it's not fully egg. Jesus is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. The Father is fully God. And they all have different parts. Some would say, well, then he's like water. Sometimes he's steam. Sometimes he's ice. Sometimes he is liquid. Even that falls short. Because that means that God is, sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. And there's no unity there. When I was in seminary, we were wrestling with that and finding that there is no perfect uh, analogy to explain the Trinity. The closest thing we came up with was pert plus shampoo. It, it's pert plus. It's three in one. It's, it's shampoo, conditioner, and like a volumizer. So there you go. Something tells me that probably falls short as well. <laughs> but what we find is that we're not saying that God is sometimes different things, that he's always fully who he is. And it's beyond our understanding. The early church fathers wrote this. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is one. Their glory is equal and their majesty co-eternal. So the early church fathers said, we don't quite get it, but we believe that they've always existed. They share, they're co-equal in their majesty and their glory. They've always existed from eternity. This is how God has revealed himself. Now, we're going to have one whole week on, on understanding who Jesus is. The myth that says Jesus was just a guru or a wise man, we'll look at that. And we have one whole week where we'll try to understand the Holy Spirit a little bit more as well. So we're not going to go super deep today. But so here's, this is a major distinction of the Christian faith. The idea of the very nature of who God is revealed to us as a trinity. Now here, let's answer the bigger question today. Why does this matter? Why do we need to know this? Now first of all, let me say, if you don't fully grasp this and understand it, God still can save you, wants to save you, and will save you. It is okay to have some questions and mystery. I like the author Anne Lamott, who's a Christian, who wrote this when she talked about giving her life to Christ. She said, I didn't need to understand the hypostatic unity of the Trinity. I just needed to turn my life over to whoever came up with redwood trees. So she's saying, you know, God revealed himself to her in a very simple way as she stood in the grandeur of nature and said, there's got to be something more. Now, she didn't get, she didn't understand everything of the Trinity at the time, but she said, there's got to be a God out there who loves me, cares about me, and made all of this. And so let's not let full comprehension ever become a stumbling block because we won't ever fully comprehend God. And by the way, this week I did learn, um, I've heard before, but saw more and more of how many people, atheists, would say that this is a stumbling block to believe in Jesus. Because they say the Trinity doesn't make sense, so I don't want to believe in Christianity. Which I think is really sad to miss out on a God of the universe who loves them and cares for them. Just because we don't fully understand this. And so we don't want to make this, that uh, this is very important, but full comprehension is okay to be, leave the tension. It's okay. So why does this matter? Let me just give you a few ideas. And again, we're going to talk more about these in the future. 
But here's why it matters. One of the reasons why the Trinity matters, the nature of God, is for salvation alone. We'll talk about it. But God, the very nature of how he has revealed himself and offers salvation to us, it's necessary that God exists in the Trinity. It's necessary for God in the role of the Father. It's necessary for God to come and to, be, uh, to live among us and live our life and present himself as a, as a perfect sacrifice for mankind. And so if God could not fulfill, well, we'll talk about it more, but if God could not fulfill his own demands if he was just doing, I'm going to go down there and pay the price for myself. God the Son paid the price for mankind to God the Father. We'll explain that next week, and I'm sure it'll be very clear. So, so salvation is, it's important, the nature of God to understand salvation. It's important. The other one is this, is this idea of, of relationships and community. The idea that God has always existed in the form of community is a great thing. From the beginning, that he was a relational God. He didn't become relational once he created mankind. That's why the very nature of humanity, that we're relational beings. We are made in the image of God, and so we need relationship. We addressed this a few weeks ago and said it's, good for, it's not good for man to be alone. That's really talking about it's because at our core, in the image of God, we're relational people. Now, some of you say, like, I, don't, I can be alone. That's okay. And I get there's times. I remember once I took a three-week mission trip to Africa with a bunch of high schoolers. And when we were coming home, we, we uh, changed planes in, in London. And I had planned this ahead of time. But I, I, I was staying in Europe for a couple extra days, for three days. I had my intern pull a country out of the hat and said, whatever you take, I'll go to. And so I went to Norway and Sweden for three days. It was a lot of fun. But I spent three days and didn't speak a word except for to order food. I didn't say a thing for three days, and it was like heaven. It was so great. I, I, I didn't talk to anyone. It was just me and, and a journal. I had a bike. I, like, rode around Stockholm all day. Didn't talk to anyone. And I thought, I could, this is okay. I can do this. Now, some of you, you hear that, and that's your definition of hell. I get it. You could never talk to someone for three days. But even those of us who love that alone time, who are relational beings, were made for relationship and connection. The other thing about the Trinity is there's unity in diversity. We find that each part of God is diverse, yet there's unity in who our God is. So it's a beauty in all of creation that there's this unity in the diversity of creation. One author says it this way. If God existed in three distinct persons who all shared the same essence, then it is possible to hope that God's creation may exhibit stunning variety and individuality while holding, while holding together all things in genuine oneness. See, when we look at the universe, it's stunningly diverse, yet it's held together, unified. I, I, I look at nature, look at animals themselves. Wouldn't it be kind of boring if all we had is like one type of fish and, and, and just one type of meat, like cows? and then only one bird or something, that's all we had. But you look at creation, I always, often think, God, why did you make it so diverse? Why is it so unique? Yet there's a common fingerprint or DNA that, that kind of, there's this blueprint that God used. It's evidence of the Trinity, of diverse, unity in diversity. Now, it's not the only evidence, but it's something we say, oh, it's in the nature of God to have unity among all this diversity. One of the reasons why, one of the practical implications of this for the church I believe, is that we should be great leaders in civil rights movement. We should be working for racial reconciliation. 
Because the beauty of creation is that there's diversity of people. And God is saying, no, that, but all things can be held together. That's why I love that Jesus was one of the great first civil rights leaders. Paul said that there's no longer any uh, slave or free or Jew or Gentile, male or female, in Christ that we can break down those walls. And because there's this unity that comes because we're made in the image of God. And so understanding the Trinity actually should lead us towards not be bigoted and hateful towards one another. Because it violates the nature of who our God is. You get me passionate all of a sudden about that. Why do we care about our community and lean in and, and do things like tutoring for the English language learners in our community? Well, because I think, one, we want to love the world that we're in, but we also want to embrace and, and be leaders of building the bridge between races in our community. We can lead the way and should lead the way. Amen is right. <laughs> so the nature of God teaches us that there can be unity and diversity. That we have salvation. We have relationships. And finally, love. We learn that just the nature of God existing as a trinity, that there's love can exist. You see, God, because God has always existed as a trinity, he's always existed in a relationship of love. And he, if he was alone in one single being, there wouldn't have been love. C.S. Lewis writes it this way. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. But they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. So the fact that God exists in a trinity actually means from the very beginning he had love. He didn't create us because he needed to find something to love. He was perfect in himself. He didn't need anything to make him more of who he is. He's always been love. But because the nature of God is love, then in, and we're in his image, gives us a capacity to love. Central to the Christian message is that we are in this relationship learning to love God, love one another, and love our world. It's the nature of who we are, why we care about this, why this matters. If God truly is love, then we should be love. It calls us to a totally different life. And I know the history of Christianity, there's moments when we were anything but love. When we did not demonstrate the nature and character of God very well. And there's times we still do that to this day. But when we truly understand how God has revealed himself to us, that sets us free to live the life that he has given us. Sets us free to live in his image. It gives us the freedom to be people of love. And so... At Seacoast, it starts with this, recognizing that God loves you. It starts with recognizing that God has created you and has a plan for you. This mysterious, all-powerful, cannot-fully-know-this-God knows you and is more close than you could ever imagine. And then from there, he calls us to live a life of love that he's demonstrated. And that's the God who we serve that 
is unique from all others, calls us to be unique from all others as we live in his image. So I want to ask you to stand with me as we end our time here in prayer. And we're going to sing a final song. And, and again, we may have created some more questions for some of you and more tension for some of you. And again, that's okay. Live in that tension. I'd love to process more with you. Even at tonight's service, we're actually going to do a little bit of Q&A over this issue. Um, so if you have friends who are wrestling with stuff, invite them back to that. But we can live in that tension, but we want to rest in the truth. That even the stuff we don't know, what we do know, is how God has revealed himself. So let's pray. God, we thank you that though we don't know everything about you, we know that you want to be known that you love us, you care about us, that, Lord, your very nature is to love. And so, Lord, for some reason, you care about your creation, and, and you pour out this incredible love, and you offer us life that's found in Jesus Christ. And because of your great love, you entered into our mess. And, Lord, we want our lives to be all about you. We want them to be all about Jesus. We want them to be filled with who you are. So God, in this place, would you speak to us? Would you move in our hearts and our minds? And Lord, as we end our time, receive our praise to the one true God. So we give you this time.